You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tanya Ramos and I'm a clinical nurse educator for the Outreach Education Program here at RCH. I'm also a clinical nurse specialist in the recovery room. Joining us today is Dr. Rebecca McIntyre. Beck is an experienced staff anaesthetist who undertakes cardiac anesthesia. At RCH, she's also a staff welfare advocate, chair of the anaesthetic department's sustainability group, and she has a special interest in providing communication with children who are undergoing procedures. Beck joins me today to speak about rapid sequence inductions for children undergoing anesthesia. Welcome, Beck. Thank you, Tan. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so happy that you're here. And I really want to start at the very beginning, Beck. What is a rapid sequence induction? Rapid sequence induction is a procedure that we use when we're worried about the patient having a full stomach and therefore being at risk of aspirating what's in their stomach. The aim of the rapid sequence induction is to place the endotracheal tube as quickly and safely as possible after loss of consciousness and therefore to protect the airway from aspiration of any gastric contents that might be there. Yeah, fantastic. Obviously, fasting is a, a why we would do a rapid sequence induction. So could you please take us through why we would do a rapid sequence induction? So in the operating theatre, typically we would do an RSI on a patient who's on the emergency list, so hasn't been able to fast um, adequately. Yeah. So either the operation is urgent and we can't wait for the fasting, mm-hmm. or the patient might be considered unfasted just because their gut's not emptying properly because they might have pain or because of their illness. For example, a child with acute appendicitis would almost never be considered to be properly fasted because their gut's just not working properly. Yeah, right. Um, Or a child who's got a supracondylar fracture that can't wait Mm -hmm. um, would be considered unfasted because... They might not have had the six hours of fasting, but mm-hmm. also because they've got pain and they're distressed and their stomach's probably not emptying properly anyway. Yeah, and you've got to do the operation because it's typically time critical. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and in the emergency department, um, can you tell us why they would do an RSI down there? Yep, sure. So in the emergency department, most of their intubations would be done with a RSI mm-hmm. or a modified RSI yep. because they don't have the time to wait to fast a patient, the patient is unwell. So yeah. we would always assume that a patient being intubated in the emergency department is at risk of aspiration. Yeah. And there's lots of different reasons for intubating the patient in the emergency department. So if they're in respiratory failure and they can't oxygenate or ventilate mm-hmm. adequately by themselves, or if they've had major trauma, head injury, burns, seizures, a child with anaphylaxis, for example, mm-hmm. or septic shock, Um, Or sometimes they might decide to intubate the patient because they need to transport the patient somewhere else, for example, for imaging and the child can't be cooperative. So for safe transport. For safety. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Now, um, you know, when I was preparing for this podcast, I did a little bit of a literature search because I'm a, um, a bit of a nerd. I read through this really amazing article talking about like the seven good steps to a rapid sequence induction. Can you take us through those, Beck? Yeah, I like this, Tanya, that you showed me the seven P's of a good rapid sequence induction. I don't think I had learned that in my anaesthetic training, but I think it's good. So let's talk about that, shall we? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Okay. So they're all the P's, Mm -hmm. all right? Um, The first P's are preparation and plan. A safe RSI 
requires all of the necessary equipment to be prepared in advance and for the team to know the plan in advance. That's so important, isn't it? It's so important because it's a time critical procedure. You need to get the tube in as soon as possible after the child goes to sleep. If you don't have everything ready beforehand, that's going to cause a problem. Yeah. Tell us what you would want prepared. You you know, you're the anaesthetist coming in either maybe to help down in the emergency department or it's actually your patient, you're working in the emergency theatre. What are the things that you need for an RSI? So you need to have the correct size endotracheal tube ready as well as some other endotracheal tubes, maybe one size up and one size down. You should have two working laryngoscopes Mm -hmm. that have been checked to make sure that the light works. You need to have suction immediately available. You need to have some adjuncts in case the intubation is difficulty. So um, a gum elastic bougie, an LMA just in case we can't get the tube in. We'd also need to have your drugs all drawn up and doses calculated in advance. Ready to go. Mm -hmm. And if the patient's unwell, like looking really unwell, Mm -hmm. then you might also want to have IV fluids ready to give bolus of Mm -hmm. IV fluids and some emergency drugs in case there's a problem. Yeah. And so the next step would then be pre-oxygenation. Is that right? Absolutely. So pre-oxygenation is a really important part of an RSI, although we can't always do it very well in small children. Yeah, that's always a challenge, isn't it? Mm, Yep. So ideally you want to pre-oxygenate your patient with 100% oxygen for about three minutes um, with a good seal of the mask around the face. So three minutes or um, until your end tidal oxygen is recording at least 80%. So in adults, we do this routinely. In children, if they can cooperate, then that's great because it adds safety. Yeah. But we, we do what we can with what we have. Yeah. They're not going to always be compliant to just kind of go lay there for the next three minutes with a mask on their face. So the the longest you can, I guess, is the best you can. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. And then we're moving kind of on to the pre-treatment. And can you tell us sort of what pre-treatment would you provide for a child having an RSI? I think this probably refers to the use of atropine mm-hmm. because especially if you're going to use saxomethonium, you can get bradycardia. Yeah. Um, especially in neonates. So some people would advocate using atropine as a pretreatment before the rapid sequence induction. And then, you know, if we're going down all the different Ps, we've got protection and positioning. Yep. Very important. Positioning is a really important part of the preparation Mm -hmm. because you need to make sure that you can get the tube in quickly and as easily as possible. So um, in an adult, you'd Mm want to put probably one pillow under the head yeah. and just have a look and see if that, that provides a good neutral position mm-hmm. for the neck. Small child, you might not have a pillow depending on the size of their head. And if they're really small, if they're a baby, you may put a towel underneath their shoulders to try and get that neutral position to make intubation easier. Yeah. You know, for the person assisting you, that, you know, that's another really good tip actually is to ensure that they've got pillows and towels and all the yeah. other little, not just the kind of anesthetic equipment, but also they've got the little other adjuncts that they might need, the little tips and tricks, you know, rolls, shoulder rolls, all that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. And also sometimes you need more than one pillow. If it's an adult sized patient, mm-hmm. depending on their body habitus, they may be better with two or even three pillows yeah. underneath. And Becky, if we just go back and talk about quickly about protection, and that's more about protection, I guess, of the airway. 
Can you tell us about cricoid pressure in pediatrics? Because that's a little bit different to adults. We know how sensitive the airway is, you know, easily collapsible, I guess, too, in children. So we don't want to put too much pressure or not enough. So can you talk us through that? Yeah. So cricoid pressure is described as an important part of a rapid sequence induction. Mm -hmm. However, the evidence for cricoid pressure, especially in children, Mm -hmm. is pretty weak. Yeah. So the idea of cricoid pressure is that you find the part of the trachea, the cricoid ring, which is rigid, Mm -hmm. and you push down when the patient becomes unconscious. Mm -hmm. You push down on that cricoid ring to try to compress the top of the esophagus. So if any gastric contents come up into the esophagus, you're stopping that from coming up and um, contaminating the airway. So it's creating a barrier stop. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But the evidence for the benefit of cricoid pressure in children Mm -hmm. is pretty flimsy. Yeah. And it's also can cause a problem depending on the anaesthetist's mm-hmm. level of skill. Well, no, just their preference, really. Yeah. Some anaesthetists really believe in cricoid pressure yeah. because, um, you know, that's the classic explanation of how to mm-hmm. do a safe rapid sequence induction. Yeah. Some anaesthetists don't believe in cricoid pressure at all in children. Yeah. So you may get an anaesthetist asking you to do cricoid mm-hmm. pressure as the assistant or you might ask them if they want cricoid pressure, they might say, no, thank no. you. Yeah. So just something to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so with it's an anaesthetic preference. Anaesthetic preference. Yeah. And it is known that cricoid pressure can make it more difficult mm-hmm. to visualise the larynx yeah. in any patient, but particularly in children. So if you are providing cricoid pressure for your anaesthetist, they may ask you to release the cricoid yeah. pressure or to modify it if it's causing a problem. Yeah, in case you're impeding the view as the assistant. That's it. Yeah. When it comes to the next P, which is paralysis and induction, can you give us a little bit of uh, information about maybe what uh, drugs you would use um, and what you would yeah what you would use for paralysis? Yeah, sure. So the P is for paralysis, but mm-hmm. we always give the induction sure. drug first. Yes, <laughs> I like that. Yes. As an anaesthetist, my preferred induction drug mm-hmm. is propofol yeah. because it's what I use all the time, yeah. and I'm really familiar with it, mm-hmm. and I really like it. Yeah. And in terms of what paralyzing agent mm-hmm. I use, I do use succimethonium mm-hmm. um, because it works really quickly and really effectively. And there's a visual endpoint when the succimethonium mm-hmm. is working, which yeah. is the muscle fasciculations. Yeah. There are t- cases where you shouldn't use succimethonium. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have some unwanted mm-hmm. side effects sometimes. And an alternative paralyzing agent would be rocuronium. So yeah. rocuronium takes a bit longer to work, but if you use it in a high dose, it is also an effective muscle relaxant. Yeah. yeah. And you, you said that in the emergency department, it might have been a little bit different in terms of the agents that they would use. Yeah. In the emergency department, the preferred induction drug would be ketamine. Yeah. And the preferred paralyzing agent would be rocuronium. And that's probably because their patients more likely to be unwell. So hypovolemic or in shock Mm -hmm. or more unwell Mm -hmm. compared with the patients who are coming to theatre. And it may also be because um, emergency physicians are less familiar with the use of propofol. And propofol, if you use a big dose of propofol in an unwell child, that can cause hypotension and other significant problems. Yeah. And then you're kind of going down a, a bit of a rabbit's hole trying to treat those symptoms. So that makes, yeah, that, that was a great explanation what you would use, mm. kind of ketamine. It's a bit more stable downstairs. Yep. Yeah. Right. We've given the drugs, we've, you, you've intubated now, and then I guess the next the next P is actually placement of proof. 
Um, yeah, can two you take P's. yeah the two P's? <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit about the placement of the endotracheal tube and how you obviously know that it's in the right place? Yeah, so this is obviously really important because if you put the endotracheal tube in the wrong place and you don't recognise that, that's a life-threatening problem. Yeah, yeah definitely. You're not going to be ventilating the lungs. You're going to be ventilating. So, yeah, the best proof of the endotracheal mm-hmm. tube being in the right place is that you've had a good view and you've watched it go mm-hmm. in between the cords. Yeah. But then you always need to verify that with end tidal CO2. In anaesthesia, that's almost always easy to verify. Yeah. But again, if you've got a really a, a patient who's arrested mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in the hospital, you yeah. may not get end tidal CO2 yeah. because of cardiac arrest. Yeah. So it can be a little bit more tricky. Yeah. And then if we're thinking about all our, you know, post-intubation uh, management and care, I think one of the big things when I go and do outreach education is that I tell people, do not let go of the tube until the anaesthetist or the ED doctor tells you to let go of the tube. So that's always like my my biggest hot tip. Even when it looks like everything's fine, unless it's taped, don't let go. Um, so that's my hot tip. But what are your other post-intubation um, management, um, obviously, tips that you would want to occur for you? Yep, that's a great hot tip. I like yeah. that. Um, and also, even before that, I mm-hmm. always teach um, my anaesthetic trainees when they place the endotracheal tube, mm-hmm. before you take the laryngoscope out of the mouth, announce to everybody mm-hmm. around how many centimetres it is. Oh, perfect. At the gum or yep. whatever, at the lip or whatever you want to say. Uh-huh. Because it's so easy for the tube to move in or move out one or two centimetres and that can cause a big problem in a small patient. Yeah, that that's so true. Making sure that that everyone's kind of knows where the the tube is actually in situ. Um, and in terms of monitoring, um, Beck, what monitoring would you be asking your assistants to to put on? The endotracheal tube is in mm-hmm. and we've secured it properly, yeah. but we need to continuously monitor that we're still safe because we've given a number of drugs that cause physiological changes. We have taken over the patient's airway and breathing and you have to not take that for granted. You have to make sure that that is, you know, we're now in control of their ventilation and oxygenation. So we need continuous monitoring of oxygen saturation and preferably end tidal CO2 as well. Certainly if you're transporting the patient around the hospital, it's important to have end tidal CO2. And you also want to be monitoring their heart rate and their blood pressure to make sure that everything's safe from that point of view. But I want to touch on, you know, parental presence, obviously for induction. You know, are there any special considerations when doing an RSI for a child? So generally, as I said, we would tend to have our parents present on induction, but not every, you know, not every place that around the state or overseas um, has the ability to do that, all the facilities. So could you tell us what you would tell the parents if you were planning on doing an RSI? Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's variation in practice mm-hmm. among the anaesthetists at the children's hospital around yeah. this. For me personally... Whilst I'm really happy to have parents come in and watch an induction in a well patient who's fasted, um, especially if the parental presence is going to make the child feel reassured and more comfortable, I think that's a really good practice. However, for a rapid sequence induction, I think that having the parent there while the child goes to sleep is not a good idea. And the reason is that I want the anaesthetist and the anaesthetic assistant to be concentrating 100% on the child's safety in a time-critical situation, and I don't want the parent to be distracting from that safety. Also, the parent can actually find it quite distressing to watch the child go to sleep that way. 
So they may react in an unexpected way. And again, that distracts from keeping the child safe. Safe, correct. So my practice is that if the child wants the parent to come into mm-hmm. the induction room for their RSI, I will bring the parent in and I'll let them stay while we're putting the monitors on, yeah. while we're pre-oxygenating the patient. Yeah. But before I give the induction drugs, then I'll ask the parent to to step out of the room. Yeah. And I find that that works well. I've never had a problem with the child being upset about yeah, the parent I was just leaving at that ask, point. And how do the parents feel at that point? Like they're quite happy because they've they've pretty much gone in all the way, really. Yeah. Look, you need to tell them beforehand what's going to happen. Yeah. But if you if you word everybody up and yeah. then you tell everybody what's happening, then I think the parents, are, in my experience, they've always been happy to leave when I ask them to leave because they understand that that's the moment where I need to focus on the child's safety. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's so important. And and as you said, just to touch back on that communication that you um, just said with the parent, it's really quite crucial because you're telling them. Typically, parents are really um, receptive to that. Like, this is why it's so important. You can come up to this phase, but at this time now, I need you to go. And I think if you set out the expectations prior to the induction, then it's not a surprise. We talked about cricoid pressure, and that's kind of an own contraindication because, you know, it could impede the view and it might be more of a hindrance than, than actual helpful for the for performing the RSI, but are there any other contraindications of, you know, undertaking an RSI? When you do a classic rapid sequence induction, you're giving a pre-calculated dose of drugs and then stopping the patient breathing and then getting the tube in as quickly as possible. Yeah. And there are circumstances where that might not actually be the safest way to intubate mm-hmm. the patient in particular if you're worried that it might not be a straightforward intubation yeah. or if there is something that means that stopping the patient breathing might actually cause a problem. Right. So an example of that might be a patient who's got an inhaled foreign body mm-hmm. that might be moving around in the airway. The anaesthetist might be worried that doing a rapid sequence induction on that patient might actually move the foreign body in a way that causes a problem. Yeah. So even though that but patient... you're unable to ventilate. And then yep. that's right. So um, even though the patient may not be properly fasted for that mm-hmm. procedure, yep. it may still be safer to do a slower induction where you keep mm-hmm. the patient breathing yep. compared to doing a rapid sequence induction. Yeah. Another contraindication to doing a rapid sequence induction, a relative contraindication, yep. would be if you're worried that the airway has been critically narrowed mm-hmm. Maybe they've got airway burns and there's yeah. swelling in the airway or maybe there's a neck abscess that is mm-hmm. compressing the airway. And in these cases where you're worried about the ability to intubate the patient, mm-hmm. um, again, I would say that a, it might be safer to do a slow, gentle gas induction. Yeah. In those cases, you always need to communicate well with the team and have difficult airway, airway equipment available before yep. you start as All well. All your plans. And um, Stefan Sabato will take us through difficult intubation in a few weeks' time. So that's that's really great that actually you've mentioned that. Are there any other uh, contraindications as well that you can think of in regards to maybe patient conditions or even drugs that are used? Saxomethonium is a drug that does have some special contraindications, yep. which would include um, severe burns, mm-hmm. uh, recent spinal cord injury, patients who are at risk of malignant hyperpyrexia, yes. or patients with some myopathic conditions. Mm-hmm. 
But you can still do a rapid sequence induction in those patients. You just need to avoid using sucks yep. and just use an use another drug. Yeah, rocuronium, for yep. example. Yeah. Yep. And you you mentioned too before about patients who are in shock and a little bit hypovolemic. Would that be an indication to use something else or to use another technique? You need to be very careful in patients who are in shock um, or who are hypovolemic because the induction drugs can cause a problem with circulation. Yeah. How would you manage that then? So the important factors there would be to assess the patient carefully mm-hmm. yeah. so that you have some understanding mm-hmm. of their clinical state. And if you think that they are hypovolemic, giving them fluids before yeah. induction yeah. would be really important. Mm-hmm. Your dose of induction drug, you would reduce it. Right. You would also have emergency drugs available mm-hmm. in case there's significant hypotension because yeah. you can cause hypotension and you can cause an arrest yeah. if you give a big the dose, induction dose yeah. of the induction drug and the yeah. patient is actually more hypovolemic than you realised. Than you realised, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there any other considerations that you would have or things that you would like available to you that the, the person assisting you, whether it's the an anaesthetic nurse or a technologist or someone in the emergency department and, you know, an ED nurse that you want available to you? So, you know, you've spoken really about yeah, the equipment, the, you know, planning. Um, can you take us through that a little bit more? Yeah, I guess the main thing is that before you start, mm-hmm. the... Everyone in the team needs to understand what the plan is and needs to be ready, as we've spoken about, with all the necessary equipment before we start. If I'm working with someone who I don't know very well, Mm -hmm. I would always make sure that I've checked that they understand what an RSI is. And if I want cricoid pressure, Mm -hmm. that they know how to perform cricoid pressure. Mm -hmm. I would check that they have um, prepared the correct size endotracheal tubes, that they have checked that the laryngoscopes are working, mm-hmm. that they have bougies and that they have all the adjunct yeah. equipment in case we can't intubate All the your plans, A, B, C, yeah. All that and <laughs> suction. And suction. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 funny that you mentioned suction too because suction is the thing that is so crucial yet probably one of the things that gets forgotten because it's sort of like, oh, well, it's just suction, but it's really when you need suctioning, you need it at that moment. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, so when I'm doing an induction in the anaesthetic room mm-hmm. at RCH, I always make sure that I put the yanker sucker, I turn the suction on because it's not yeah. always on, yeah. turn it on and put the yanker sucker under the patient's pillow before yeah. we start. That's such a great tip and trick. So Something so simple and easy, but that it, it's really almost life-saving, really. You, you'd want to have that available as quickly as possible. Exactly. It's easy to do, but it's also easy to forget to Correct. do. Absolutely. Beck, before we wrap up today, I just want to ask you one final question, um, and that's in regards to ventilating the patient before intubation. Can you take us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So in a classic rapid sequence induction, when you've pre-oxygenated your adult-sized patient mm-hmm. correctly, and then you give a dose of succinamethonium, you shouldn't need to positive pressure ventilate the patient right. because they've got enough oxygen in their lungs mm-hmm. that they won't become hypoxic before you get the endotracheal tube in. Yeah, we've got that reserve. Yep. Often you can't pre-oxygenate them very well. Mm-hmm. And even if you can pre-oxygenate them quite well, they've got less reserve. Yeah. So they'll pre- they'll tend to um, desaturate sooner. Yeah. Whilst sometimes I won't positive pressure ventilate mm-hmm. the patient, because the problem with positive pressure ventilation in a rapid sequence induction is that you may ventilate the stomach with air, which might increase the risk of the contents of the stomach Coming up. Coming back up, yep. Into the esophagus and into the airway. Mm-hmm. So that's why we try to avoid it. Yeah. 
but we also want to avoid significant hypoxia. So if a patient is becoming hypoxic before we're ready to intubate, mm-hmm. then it's perfectly okay to um, ventilate, ventilate them, positive pressure ventilate mm-hmm. them, but try to do it gently and be aware that you don't want to blow up the stomach with heaps and heaps of air. Yeah. Would you then say, for example, if you were a little bit too vigorous with your ventilation, would you then routinely insert like a in and out kind of a suction catheter to maybe empty the stomach of its content and the excess air? Yep. That might be a good idea after you've secured the, yeah. the, the airway. Endotri- yep. Endotracheal tube. Yep. Yep. So you, your priority is to get the endotracheal mm-hmm. tube in quickly. Yep. But once that is secure, then it's often a good idea to decompress the stomach with a nasogastric tube or orogastric tube. Yep. Yep. Oh, perfect. So thanks so much for that wonderful information you've given us back on RSI. You've really taken us through sort of, you know, preparing and planning and then obviously undertaking and the contraindications and different considerations that we need to think about. What are your key take-home messages in regards to an RSI? If we could just kind of quickly wrap it up. A rapid sequence induction is performed to minimise the risk of aspiration mm-hmm. in an unfasted patient who needs to be intubated. So preparation is the key to success. Yeah. No time for mucking around after you've given mm-hmm. the induction drugs, so preparation. My second point would be that patients who need an RSI are often also quite sick. Mm-hmm. So close monitoring at induction and after induction is really important. Yeah, that's such a great tip. And I don't think I mentioned mm-hmm. that I will put on monitors before the yeah. patient goes to sleep mm-hmm. if they can tolerate it yeah. for an RSI. Yeah, perfect. We've talked about the fact that a classic RSI is not always possible mm-hmm. in children because they just might not be able to tolerate the pre-oxygenation procedure mm-hmm. and because cricoid pressure might cause problems with intubation. Yeah. But in paediatric anaesthesia, we do our best and we sometimes mm-hmm. have to change our plan. Yeah, you got to roll with the punches. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And finally, if the mm-hmm. airway is suspected to be difficult, then an RSI might not be the safest technique. Mm-hmm. And your anaesthetist might elect to do a gas induction um, with all your difficult airway equipment prepared and ready and maybe even an ENT surgeon on standby too. Yeah, amazing. Safety first. Well, thank you so much, Beck. It's been wonderful having you here with us today and we really appreciate your time. You're really welcome, Tan. <laughs> Thanks so much. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.